My next guest is a PhD in organization management who studied the impact of explicit coordination practices on the success of organizations and projects. He's also a university professor, a good friend and colleague of mine, and just an all-around really smart guy. His journey to attain his PhD is both inspiring and educational. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Please welcome Dr. Ron Darnell. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Notables Podcast, where we share transformative ideas and conversations with interesting and inspiring people. We hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review and rating. We're glad you're listening. This is Notables. Ron, thank you so much for uh, joining the show. I'm good to be here. Good to be here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, where where are you at right now? I am in Addison, Texas, right now. Addison, Texas. Is that close to where? Where's that close to? For uh, most of the cities I know in Texas. <laughs> well, it's a suburb of Dallas, and uh, I'm about. If you've been to the DFW airport, I'm probably 11 miles north, what east of the Dallas airport. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very cool. Addison used to be the Addison used to be the go-to place. It, that's all kind of moved to Plano now. But it's oh, okay. still kind still kind of hopping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I uh I, I just remember all my trips out there when we were working together over at uh our last company or a couple companies ago as agile coaches and uh taking trips over to what was that little town? Grapevine. Grapevine, Grapevine. Texas. Yeah. Yeah. I love that little town, man. They had cool little pubs there, some wine tasting. Yeah, it's a good spot. Yeah, it's a it's a real progressive kind of place. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, Ron, I uh, you know we've we've worked together for on and off for a number of years now, and mm-hmm. uh, you put a tremendous amount of work um, into getting your PhD. And uh, yes, yeah, you know, so I definitely want to talk about that and what that journey was like, but. Um, I'm literally just going to read off the, you know, the, the title of your, of your PhD, I guess it's the, the dissertation, right. And, right. uh, kind of talk a little bit about that. Cause I think a lot of it applies, it directly applies to some of the work, work we do as, uh, agile coaches and business coaches in general, working with organizations to help them transform to this new and better way of working. Um, so your, your dissertation was uh, implicit and explicit measures of coordination effectiveness as predictors of agile software development projects effects, uh, a regression approach. And I, I really liked your, your opening uh, statement out of your abstract, and I'll quote this directly, from household appliance components and simple web searches to smartphones, spacecraft controls, and enablement of global economic activity, software is a a ubiquitous, ubiquitous, sorry, and an essential facet of 21st century life. Thus, software development activity contributes significantly to the United States economy. So maybe we could spend a couple minutes and just talk about, you know, from your travels out there, you know, what's the landscape look like now? What have you seen uh, working with some of the largest organizations out there that you've worked with so far? 
Well, I've worked with some of the largest, you know, Fortune 50, Fortune 10, Fortune 5 companies, basically. And uh, the if if anything, it's exp grown ex exponentially as far as the dependence on software. It's, it's basically organizations are no longer about products or about technology, you know, delivering, using technology to deliver goods and services to customers. And, yeah. uh, you know, the focus has kind of changed on how we can do that in the most efficient manner. Uh, you know, at the time that I, I worked on my dissertation, when I did the research, you know, it was about like one, almost 2% of our GDP was in, is spent on software development or of one kind or another. And uh, I would just, just a guess, I would expect that to be probably in orders of maybe three to 4% now. And, and just mm -hmm. in five years, you know, it's grown that much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's huge. And you can, it, I, I think, you know, what's evidence of that is, you know, the, the, uh, the job market around software development, data science, and, you know, we're progressing into some new territory with, you know, I hate to use this blanket term, but artificial intelligence, but <laughs> that whole field is just exponentially growing as well. So the need for specialists and, and technologists has grown immensely and continues to grow. Um, so, yeah. And, and I've, I've seen it as well, but yeah, there'd be, I, I think you, you said was perfect. You know, we we have a, a growing dependency on on software and software development. I think a lot of people out there that aren't or that are using, you know, these mobile devices and web applications and just household appliances in general, a lot of them have software built right into them. I mean, you can get refrigerators now that have large screen TVs in them and you can interact with people in, in video call right from your kitchen. It's it's pretty incredible. Uh, to, you know, smart home systems and, and things like that. And uh, I think a lot of people out there take that stuff for granted. The amount of work and uh, thought and, and expertise that goes into, you know, all of this software that's powering all these devices, right? Yeah, very much so. I, I think it's because it's one is it's not visible. You know, it's not like you can look at the craftsmanship in a BMW you can see that you can feel it. It's tactile. With software, it, the user interface looks good, but that's a very small part of what all goes into making this work. And people don't really have most people don't really have an ex, an appreciation for that unless they're involved in the industry somewhere or another. And even then, I mean, like we were talking in before the meeting, I was doing a class today, and there were people in there that uh, worked in IT that still haven't heard of some of the newer methodologies that we use to develop software. So. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's very interesting to, to realize that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I know I come across a lot of folks, especially, you know, you would, you would think that that would just be part of the curriculum and, and vernacular that's used in, you know, at the university level. A lot of times I know it is in the programs that you teach at some of the universities that you're on faculty. Um, but it's, it's kind of a, a staggering, you know, to mm -hmm. me about how many people are coming in the workforce aren't and, and aren't, acclimated or familiar with these newer, more effective and efficient ways of working, um, especially in, in some of the big three, you know, consulting firms um, with a lot of those folks that I work with as well. So yeah, and it, 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 it's, it is so true is it's not tactile. 
You know, you, you take that stuff for granted. We just get a new iPhone and we expect it to be faster and better with better cameras, but you, you see the hardware, but we, because we're in industry have such a, a deeper level of appreciation for the work that goes into powering that hardware. And I always think, and I've always said this for, for years now is, you know, when the iPhone first came out and things like that, and we made these these uh, leaps in technological advancement, that we, uh, you know, we we were blown away. Our expectations were <laughs> overly met, and now it's like technology and software can't even keep up with our te- with our human expectations. Like our expectations are growing at a at a far more rapid rate than technology can keep up in a lot of areas. Some some are advancing more. Um, or ahead of them, like space travel and things like that, you know, mm-hmm. but we expect everything now, you know, if you wait more than a, a half a second for a web page to load, you're getting pissed off, you know? That's true. That, that's yeah. very much true. Our, our, you know, once you experience the faster throughput, you expect it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of way so I, I found... You know, your, your study, very, very interesting. And I certainly haven't read through all couple hundred pages of it, but I did read the abstract <laughs> and, um, you know, just to get down to the meat of it and <clears throat> I'd love for you to spend some time and talk about this. Cause I, I think it's super relevant, um, especially in, in today's environment, but you studied it and proved the importance of explicit coordination, uh, alongside implicit coordination of activities around software development. It, explain exactly what, you know, implicit and explicit coordination is. Well, coordination in, in general is when we have to interface or interact with someone else to perform what we want to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it could be, it happens at different levels. There's the personal community coordination that happens like between team members. You know, I need you to do something before I can do my thing, and or we need to work together on this, like in a pair programming situation. Then there's coordination between teams or organization levels and that kind of stuff. So we're, we have a dependency somewhere that we need. Well, we have to coordinate the delivery or the fulfillment of that 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 dependency. And in my study, coordination is viewed. There's a there was a uh, seminal work done back in, I guess, like in the 70s by a guy named uh, Malone, Tom, M- Thomas Malone and Kevin, I think his name is Kevin Calston Cal- is the name. They came up with a theory of coordination, uh, inter- interdisciplinary theory of coordination. And I used that as kind of the basis of what I was looking at because one is a published work, uh, just to kind of get on the, on the dissertation track. One of the things that happens when you're doing this kind of academic research, you just can't pull things out of the air. You have to go look at the literature and find uh, these these kinds of published peer-reviewed theories out there. So I took that one and the definition I came up with is managing or coordinating dependency among independent activities, groups, individuals involved in the organizational effort. So again, it's, we have to work together. Uh, coordination effectiveness is the extent that that coordination results in some kind of action. And so it's the extent to which the actions manage the dependencies among these different groups. 
So how effective is the coordination? And mm-hmm. there was a, a woman that uh, in, from New Zealand that wrote a, uh, her, <clears throat> excuse me, wrote her dissertation. Her thesis was on uh, coordination, a theory of coordination in agile projects. And so I based a lot of my work on hers plus the Malone and Crouston work and came up with a definition for coordination effectiveness and aiming explicit coordination. And that's the, uh, the component of the coordination where uh, we have an intentional, we, we're, we use coordination mechanisms to inten- intentionally for the management of dependencies amongst different groups. So we have intentionally we meet to talk about this issue. That's an explicit type of coordination versus implicit coordination where we occur within ourselves kind of osmotically to, you know, to uh, borrow from uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Alistair Coburn's work. He talks about osmotic communication. We have osmotic coordination where we kind of do it without really setting rules and boundaries to do that. So they hear things like teams develop a common mindset. Uh, so, but we adjust our behavior based on what we know about people we interact with. So if I know that I can count on you to write certain uh, code that I'm dependent on, then I'm going to, that's kind of an implicit coordination. I trust you to do that. It's, it's accountability thing. And one of the things with the agile world back in the time that I did the study, which is the 2014 time set, 2015 time frame. Um, and Agile has grown a lot since then. Uh, uh, you know, I think at the time that I did the study, it was about 50% of the organizations, IT organizations that were surveyed were engaged in some type of Agile activity, where now I think the la- latest articles that I read, it's somewhere around maybe 75 to 80%. And mm-hmm. just in the last five years, it's almost almost doubled, you know, a 50% increase. Um, so uh, at the time I, I did the survey, it was, there was not a lot of literature on this. That's, that's one of the reasons that I did the study is to kind of address that gap in the, in the literature. And um, so I had to make some some assumptions here uh, based on, on what was what I was looking at and uh, kind of expect that what I could see could I could it could generalize that to the bigger bigger population and so I used the theory the theories that were that uh, her name was Diane Stroud the, the woman in from us from New, New Zealand that did this this study and uh, I used her theoretical assumptions she talks about boundary objects and all these kinds of things. But basically what I found out in from my study, I, I surveyed about a hundred and, well, I got about 150 responses. I, I sent out about 1,200 and some odd and performed a simple, uh, well, a multiple regression analysis. We did, we did a kind of a 14 level regression analysis. And what I found out is that explicit coordination, that um, kind of purposeful, coordination was had a higher correlation with project success than implicit coordination. And at the time that I was doing the study, I was looking at this and I was thinking that all the literature was all about 
uh, this osmotic, you get a bunch of people together and you co-locate them in a room and magic's going to happen, right? And my consulting work I was doing at that time didn't really line with that. You know, we had to have the teams meet and we had to have, you know, a stand-up meeting where we talk about three, you know, what I did yesterday, what I'm going to do today, what I'm going to do tomorrow. Those are very explicit types of terms that we do. And there wasn't, in my view, a lot of implicit coordination going on. And so what I found was that both are necessary for, for agile uh, project success. And in, in my survey, I did, I defined agile project success as, uh, you know, not only the kind of the scope and the, the time and budget, but the actual satisfaction or that, that the, uh, stakeholders had with the frequency the delivery, which is a big key in, in the Agile manifesto. We, you know, deliver working software frequently, right? And yep. so that was, a, that was, as a matter of fact, I think it says that's how we measure success, right? And uh, so I put that into the study and, and came up with, with that. And so what I found is that it takes both to make something successful, but it takes the implicit measures uh, have to be there before the explicit measures really kind of kick in. And it may be, I mean, looking back, it, the it, you could say, well, maybe the the fact that since there was only like half of the companies around were doing Agile, that it was, a, it was kind of a transition period and the stakeholders really weren't, you know, didn't understand what Agile was all about, that it was actually more successful, but they just didn't understand. So there's some kind of bias there that maybe I didn't account for. Um, looking back on it, from now, from this perspective and, and some of the additional work I've done, I kind of see it as a, uh, that it's a kind of a maturity thing. The, the teams that have reached higher levels of maturity seem to do better. The, the, the implicit measures seem to be more uh, of a component of their success than the explicit measures. So I've, I've been on teams where they stop having, you know, the daily standups and reduce it to maybe two times a week. You know, because they they they're they're functioning so well that they feel like that time is used better, um, you know, getting work done instead of coordinating with each other, those kinds of things. So that that's kind of where where I'm at with, with it right now. It's a kind of a maturity thing. If you you start to mature a team, you start with the explicit stuff, make them follow the rules and 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 communicate and coordinate with each other, and then once they get uh, to uh, understand the process, then you can, then, then they get to where they enter that more explicit state of doing work. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that seems to align well with, you know, uh, another agile principle, which is pulled from um, Japanese martial arts called Shu Hari, right? Right. So you start in the Shu phase, which is uh, being very prescriptive, working together daily, all of that, and you get the motions down. Um, I think this was this was part of uh, the Karate Kid movie as well. Just re repetition of of motion and moves, and the Ha stage where they start to um, depart from that prescriptiveness a little bit, and then the Re stage where they're making new moves themselves, putting it all together and, and mastering it. Yeah, um, and I would I would suspect my guess would be so if I replicated the study today. Uh, the results might be different. Um, you know, one of the things I might want to include as a control variable is uh, some kind of maybe maturity evaluation of the respondents. So 
they get them to tell me how mature they think their team is and see if there's a correlation there, uh, which would be a good way to rep- maybe a good follow on, you know, uh, I don't know if I would want to do it, but maybe there's a graduate student out there that would like to, and I'd be happy to work with them. <laughs> on that. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. With, after your, uh, it took you what, seven, I think you, you worked your PhD for what, seven or eight years. About seven it took years me almost, it took me seven years to get it done. Yeah. Which is, I think fairly typical. Um, especially when you're working at it part-time, uh, and I was thinking about this the other day uh, that a lot of the, back when I first started uh, college, you know, a long time ago, we didn't have the internet and stuff. And if, if you wanted to do any real research, you had to go camp out in the library forever. Uh, I don't think that I would have been able to do this and maintain a full-time job and, and be a husband and father and all that stuff uh, and complete this PhD at the same time without the internet and the technology that, you know, we're, we're engaged in. Uh, yeah. So it's, it was a lot of hard work. Uh, it took a long time. Uh, you know, I think we've, Lessons learned on this is that if I had it to do over again, um, I would probably try to figure out some way to, once I finished the first couple of years, which is the first couple of years for most programs of this type, you know, I'm not sitting in a lab, you know, learning from the greatest physicists in the world. You know, it's not that kind of doctoral work, but um, I did have an advisor and a mentor and, and he was an expert and all that. And um, it would have been better to just kind of figure out some way to do it full time. Once I once I finished that first couple of years and passed the comprehensive exam process, which was a whole a whole different kind of stress that uh, you know you, you've got maybe probably sixty seventy thousand dollars invested in this in your future, whether or not you continue the program depends on you know this one comprehensive exam. And uh, I, I suffered, I think, a, a significant amount of post-comprehensive exam stress disorder after that. <laughs> but, <laughs> you, should, that should, you should coin that's a that's a new uh, ailment. Sure. Uh, maybe. I mean, it was like it took me a good six months before I could pick up another journal article and read it. I was just so spent. But I would figure out some way to do it full time because uh, one of the things that happens is to maintain the integrity of the, the, your research, it needs to be recent and relevant research, right? So yeah. most of the schools want you to have uh, the literature that you review, which is, which is the basis of your study, basically. You can't, you can't just, you have to prove uh, to your school and, and, and your uh, advisors and stuff that the study produces new knowledge and it's it, it's it's interesting to someone so it has to pass the who cares and the so what test and the more relevant it is the the better you have a better better that is you know the better you you pass those tests and for me uh well one of the things that happens when you extrapolate this out over three four five six years is that Life happens, right? And, you know, my father passed away during this time, and and there was all kinds of uh, stuff that helped uh, kind of roadblocks, if you will. 
And I think if I'd had a couple of years to just work on it full time, I probably could have knocked it out. Uh, one of the one of the issues I had is that the um, literature that I had started to use in the beginning got stale. Uh, it didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't relevant. They wanted to be within five years of the time you submit your dissertation for committee approval. Right. And Makes so, sense. yeah. And they only want like. You know, if you do anything older than five years, it has to be very seminal work, like the the, the uh, Malone and Crouston work, and uh, it has to be recognized as seminal work, and by other scholars. And um, so there's things things like that that I probably could have avoided had I just figured out some way to pay bills and do this full time. Um, yeah. For for a couple of years, one is, yeah, I, I could have been able, I could have got the. Uh, uh, research done. Now the, the study itself, the, one of the things that a lot of schools don't explain to you when you start these programs is that you got to finance your own research and the conducting a scientific survey is not cheap. And you have to pay for that out of pocket in addition to your tuition. And then in my case, you know, I'm not a statistician. So I needed to hire a statistician to help me with the statistics on this. I understood everything he was doing, but you know, whether or not I was doing reliable and valid statistics and things like that, I needed that coach, if you will, you know, you're familiar with coaching and I had to pay somebody to coach me through the statistics. And those are expenses that I didn't anticipate that kind of do this, but it was a transfer Formational type of experience. I'm a very much different person than I was when I started it. I have a different perspective on on life. I'm more of a I'm a better critical thinker than I was when I started, and I, I think um, the whole process made me a better uh, member of society, if you will. And um, I don't, um, you know, it, it 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 it's one of those kind of things that stresses you. And it's like like a physical activity, uh, you know. It's like lifting weights, and you go through the stress, and you bulk up and become stronger and better. And that's kind of how I feel about it now. Uh, yeah, I've been able to I've been able to to work this into a full time faculty job at a school called Amberton University, where we do uh, a project management, an MBA in project management, and a uh, Master of Science in Agile project management. And I was able to I was able to author both of those programs and get them launched. We've probably graduated, you know, maybe a thousand students since the since the MBA program. We did that back in 2010, and the Agile program is just a year old now. We've got a couple of hundred students enrolled in the program and graduated our first 10 or 15 this last term. I mean, you know, that's that's. That's great because, you know, I've had several conversations, uh, not just with my wife, but with some other folks and, you know, my, uh, you know, my, my thought and, and I keep going back to, you know, all, all these, uh, I want to call them kids. They seem like kids to me at this point, <laughs> not that I'm too old, but, you know, getting a, a, a master's in, in, in agile, you know, project management and all that. I mean, that's, that, that's a, that's a big ticket right there. I mean, that's a big ticket into a lot of doors right there because every company out there, you know, you, you, you cited this a little bit earlier about, 
you know, the percentage of companies that were leveraging agile principles and, you know, practices um, through, you know, one or more of, of, of many delivery frameworks. And it's really the way things are going. I think, you know, a lot of that to me, my theory is that, you know, now we're actually getting data back on the success rate of projects that are, you know, utilizing these principles, this way of, of thinking about planning and executing work. So now it's saving these companies, it's saving the economy in general, a lot of money. And yeah. we're able to crank out more innovation at a faster rate. Well, at the time that I did my study, about there was a, the success rate for agile projects was about 42%, which was probably about a 16 or 17% improvement over prior methods. I don't like to use the term waterfall, but a, a sequential method. And um, uh, I would I was doing a class today where I had to do some, you know, look some of this up. And I think that the success rates now around sixty nine percent of agile projects that are are considered successful. So, you know, compared to prior ways of working, um, you know, we're looking at order to, order of thirty percent more uh, success rate. So it makes it kind of worth the investment as far as organizations go, because we were spending a lot of money before on how to do, uh, you know, development the old way and kind of having issues with it. Now, you know, the success is kind of one of those, uh, you know, you can try to be precise and, and have real narrow range of tolerance on it. But there were a lot of projects that I, I was involved in back in the, you know, pre-agile days that, while financially they might not have been or a success or maybe we delivered them late, but they were still functional and delivered value. It's just that it wasn't in the time frame or the budget frame that was expected. So now with Agile, we, we kind of focus on, well, how much value can I get for the dollars I want to spend? You know, not so how much value did I not get for the dollars I spent? Um, so it's a different way of looking at the work. You know, we, We've kind of we've kind of looked at well we can do, you know, eighty percent of what you want for this budget and deliver that right away, or if you want more, we'll we'll do it, but it's going to take longer to you know it's going to take more iterations and more sprints or whatever, and it, we put that decision into the hands of the person that's doing the financing and stuff, and we've got gotten away from saying okay well. We're gonna. We got away from kind of that fixed price mentality, that contract mentality. That you know, where the business says, "Well, you said you would do this for this budget, and screw you." You know, we've gotten away from that, and that's been that's yeah. good. That's very good. Yeah, and you know, and I always talk about because you know, uh, from from us working together uh, pretty closely uh, recently within the last year again at another organization that. You know these principles and this and a lot of what you, uh, you know, researched and, and studied and researched and, and theorized on and then proved uh, applies to you know knowledge work of of all kinds as well. You know whether it be finance, HR, um, other other things. But it, really, what it boils down to, I think, for me principally, is you know effective, you know, hyper effective, uh, you know, communication and um, uh, you know, coordination, like you said, of, of, of a lot of different activities um, 
from a lot of different parties coming from a lot of different parts of inside and outside the organization. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about, cause you know, we hit on this um, in just a, a sidebar, you know, personal conversation a while back and I found it really interesting. Uh, you know, obviously your, your path to uh, your, your PhD was uh, a long and, and sometimes arduous you know, <laughs> process. Right. And, uh, you know, I have several friends that are on that journey right now and, and several have just finished. And, um, I, you know, I want to talk a little bit about, um, what, what led you to that? You know, you, you brought up something earlier. I wanted you to tell the story cause, uh, you know, it really resonated with me and I found it really interesting, but what, what prompted you to, to go the extra 10 miles and get that highest level kind of academic, uh, you know, well, it's, uh, it's credential. Well, it's something I wanted to do. Um, there was at the, it's a, it's a personal goal that I've always had and there's some reasons for it. And I can talk about those, but, uh, in my family, my, my father was, uh, he didn't get a college degree, but he was a, a kind of an electrical engineer. And, and so I was kind of the first person in my family to, you know, go to college and, and, and get a college degree and all that kind of stuff which I was motivated primarily because when, and I guess I still do, I don't, I don't know if you ever get over it, but you learn to adapt. I had what we know now as dyslexia and it's a you know pretty bad case of it. My kids both have it. I think it's a heretic, hereditary thing. I'm not sure, but um, nowadays we have, you know, the school systems have ways of helping kids cope with it. But back in my day, you were just a stupid kid in the class. You know, and yeah, and it kind of puts a stigma on you that carries carries you carry it through your life. And for me, going to school was kind of a way to kind of validate that that didn't really apply to me. And you know, earn earn the PhD with you know all the there was never really a financial motive. I don't think at my age, my place in my career, I'll ever make a re- positive return on investment in it financially personally it's been great but uh for me it was a way to kind of say to all of those naysayers that you know i'm I'm just as capable as the next guy and uh that that kept me going through the whole thing and i was able yeah. to do it and now that i have it um you know i can't i i, I feel validated in some way and uh yeah that's you know, aside all of the other things, I, I was interested in the agile stuff. It's kind of, you know, I, it's kind of the, it's kind of where I'm at in in my career, and it's very interesting all that stuff. But you have to have more than just more than just a job, more than just a career to make it. Uh, there were a lot of times when I wanted to bail, and I, I kept saying, "Well, you know, that's what people would say. You just couldn't do it. You know, you just couldn't cut it." And it, that kept me motivated and kept me in there. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that. That's really powerful, Ron. I mean, you know, it, it's it, it, you know attaining that that level of success, you know, academically, um, you know, that journey, that path. I mean, I've heard so many stories for guys that are working on it for 10, 12 years, and it's um, you know it's hard enough without um, being uh, you know I, I would say you know challenged with something like like that with dyslexia especially mm-hmm. back in the day wouldn't you know they didn't have the treatments that they do and, and things that they can do now and you know having persevered through that and 
having the drive and determination, I mean, that, that speaks volumes, you know? So, uh, you know, that, that's, that, that's really great. That's really empowering, you know, especially for a lot of people listening out there that might be, you know, have something that's standing in the way or, or being told they can't do something, you know, it's, uh, you know, your, your story is great. You know, it's great yeah. for that. Thank you. So Thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate you, uh, you know, sharing that. Um, you know, I, 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 I can't help but remember, and I, and I, I'm trying to tie a correlation back here because, you know, what I, what I would love to walk away from, from our conversation and some of the work that you spent a good part of your life and, and so much work um, um, pursuing with this implicit and explicit con- uh, coordination. Um, I remember back in, I think it was 2013 when uh, Yahoo hired a new CEO, Marissa Mayer. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things she did, uh, an internal memo went out and then it leaked to the public was basically uh, banned all remote workers. And mm-hmm. it really, I mean, it hit every news channel and, and it, you know, it was huge, huge news. People are like, what is this woman doing? This is the new way of working. You know, it not only saves, you know, organizations just, incredible amount of money and resources but um you know sometimes your team your organization may be located somewhere where the talent pool might be a little smaller so you have to reach out and and you know it's just I, in 2013 i have to think that the, the technological advancements the tools that we could utilize right now to have a presence even remotely were still there they may not have been as good but she, you know, I read an article recently, she's no longer with Yahoo, but she, I read an article recently that she still stands behind that. And unfortunately, she, that kind of is her legacy at Yahoo. When she made that decision, uh, it pissed a lot of people off inside and outside of Yahoo. But remote, you know, collated or uh, remote workforce is still won the game and is continuing to win and become even more prevalent out there. So maybe if you could just spend a couple minutes on your thoughts on that, you know, it's, it's something that a lot of the organizations that I work with, I'm sure you work with still, you know, maybe it's not fully remote five days a week, but at least a portion of it. And with the tools that we have out there, how does, how does the, the, you know, maintaining that, that good level of it and advancing and that you're getting better at, you know, implicit or explicit coordination, you know, Talk, spend a couple minutes and talk about that. What do you, what do you hypothesize or or theorize on that? Well, I, I think that my study could help inform some of the decisions that people make in that, in that area, in that, you know, we have all these wonderful technologies that allow us to communicate, you know, video, chat, all that kind of stuff. And like you say, I've been doing this for a number of years and I don't think I've been it any organization yet that had everybody 100% co-located. There were right. islands of teams that were co-located, but even those teams had dependencies on outside people, vendors, and that kind of stuff. And so I I think that the whole work from home model or the work remotely model, I've worked on probably one of the most geographically diverse projects I've worked on was, was back in... in I don't know, it was several years ago, but we had a project where we were, we had people in Ireland, uh, France, 
uh, India, China, Australia, California, Texas, and on the East Coast. So we covered the entire globe. Was, we that, were able, was that your work? Was that your work with Match? No, it was with Texas Instruments. Oh, okay. Uh, I was working with Texas Instruments with the calculator group, and we were developing a new uh, software for a new calculator they had. It's the TI Inspire that you see in this. The first one of the first versions. It's not the one you see now, but it was one of the earlier versions, the Inspire. And the Inspire works a lot like a little iPhone, basically, or an iPad, where you can download apps and stuff. And so we had all these companies developing apps for it. We had the, the company in in Australia was developing a like a spreadsheet, a spreadsheet app that goes on it. The folks in in India were developing a two um, D math app and things like that. And but we had to coordinate all of that. Uh, work and get it all into because one of the things that happens in when you're dealing with manufacturing calculators, especially when you have the school situation, you have a pretty much you have a deadline that you have to have these things leave in the factory. And they were, you know, they built them in Shenzhen at the time. I think they still do, but they needed to be on the boat basically and headed to the warehouse like the first of May in order to make it to your target store by the beginning of the school year. And so it was quite uh, an ordeal to coordinate with all those things. And I think had I had done the study by then, I, I, you, you could learn to kind of develop a coordination strategy, if you will, that says, you know, we need to make sure that everybody knows uh, why we're doing what we're doing. We need to make sure they know what's going on and when it's going on. And we can use technology to do that, you know, Trello boards or whatever. Uh, know what to do and when to do it. You know, we maybe we have a daily uh, coordination call, kind of like a stand-up meeting or a daily scrum meeting. Knowing who's doing what, so that's goes back to that daily meeting. Or maybe we have, you know, with a remote team, I think I would probably want to do those a couple of times a day. You know, just a ten-minute call that says, "Hey, what are you doing with with the whole team on?" What do you what do you uh, you know what are you going to do and, and what kind of you know how can I help you? And then we need to know who are the experts on the team. So maybe you've got somebody in another location that you know they have a particular skill. We want to make sure that everybody on the team knows what that skill is, so that when we need to need that, we can coordinate that deliver that that dependency with that person. Mm-hmm. And then there's the the part of coordination is well, are we what we're doing, or is it in the right place at the right time, and is it the right thing that we're doing? And so, all of those kinds of coordination aspects, you will, of, of coordination effectiveness. Uh, you know, if you if you address all, what is it? There's like uh, seven of those items. I think you could develop a pretty good coordination strategy for re- remote teams and remote work that uh, would keep the project moving efficiently. Um, you know, there's a, it's kind of a common idea with a lot of remote work that, well, you know, it takes 24 hour turnaround and all that kind of stuff. But I think you could, you could collapse that to, you know, uh, where you can hand off work to maybe, you know, somebody that's working a different time zone, you work your, you work your time zone. And then when it's time for you to go, you hand off the work to them. They, you know, that was always the ideal, but it never really worked 
because we didn't have uh, effective ways of, of coordinating the work with each other. And that's where I think the study that I did could help inform that work. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, when I, when I was reading about uh, Yahoo was, you know, her, her argument for, you know, banning all these remote workers was the, um, it affects your, your collaboration. But I think what, it, what I'm hearing you say is that if you have, you know, the, the steps or the processes or boundaries in place that, you know, that collaboration and coordination can still be just as effective as having somebody, you know, there in person, especially when you're leveraging Correct. some of the technologies, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Now, now there's, there's no substitute for knowing, having that personal kind of interaction with people. And I think you can still achieve that by having, you know, maybe a, some kind of frequent get togethers, you know, I, like one of the companies that where you and I both work, they would, bring people in to, you know, from India to actually stay on site for a month. Um, and they would rotate those people out and you got to know them kind of on a personal basis. There's, it's, it's hard to replicate that, but all the other aspects of coordination, I, I think you can achieve you know, with, especially with some of the technologies we have, uh, you know, where you can get on Skype and have a, or hangouts, Google hangouts and things like that. And you can, or, or um, GitHub has a, what is it they have? But the, all the online kind of permanent uh, connectivity tools that we have today, there's no reason we can't achieve that same level of coordination. Yeah. Yeah. And some, uh, some companies, I was working for a, a small uh, startup. I was consulting with them for, for a bit and they brought in, um, they made an investment in um, virtual presence robots. So that's, that's a new thing. And these things yeah. are look like poles on wheels with iPads at the top. And they actually learn the layout of your office. And when it's meeting time, they can find their way, navigate to a conference room and kind of stand up. Like I have a seat at the table and you can see somebody's face like they're interacting in a regular meeting. They can share documents on it and everything, which is pretty incredible. <laughs> I saw that at one of my clients. And they actually did pair programming with those things. They would, uh, you know, they would have somebody, you'd be sitting in your desk and the robot would be right, you know, the little, I call it the robot, but anyway, it would be sitting right there next to them and they would be on a, you know, virtual machine, virtual desktop where they could both access the same thing. And they would sit there and have that kind of, it was pretty much near the same kind of interaction you'd have if you were sitting physically right next to each other. It was quite yeah. amazing to see that work. It's incredible. Yeah. I, I'm looking at a couple right now and, you know, they range anywhere from a couple hundred dollars up to five, $6,000, depending on the, the, the quality of the, the robot you get. But there's technology out there that has to do with artificial intelligence in building cognitive, what they call cognitive compilers, where the compiler, the software compiler has AI built into it so that the business owner or the business user, whoever wants a product can actually interact, interact with the compiler through neural language, uh, natural language processing. And so you think of a, the user story kind of format as a this, I want that so that I can do this, right? So you kind of talk to the AI in those kinds of, that kind of syntax. And it figures out, it takes a guess at what it thinks you want, right? Generates 
the code automatically and throws you a demo, if you will, a, an example of what it thinks you're going to do. And you tell it, oh, yes, it's, this is what I want or what I don't want. And you do those through several iterations. And it basically starts to learn and is able to predict your patterns to where it can actually generate code that can go into production without any human interaction, except at the beginning and maybe at the very end when the consumer consumes it. Uh, this is kind of this is kind of the kind of what's got me excited right now <laughs> to see where that goes. Yeah, yeah, that's very exciting stuff. I'm I'm fascinated by the whole AR world. I was I was reading up on it. You know, I've I've got this interest in. I I think there's a a big uh, problem with recommendation engines, right? So for like websites, whether it's a shopping experience or discovering new music or podcasts or things like that, and there's uh, some really cool stuff going on, especially at Google. Google's got an open uh, API where you can tap into a lot of their AI kind of algorithms and machine learning language, and uh, they make that they, they expose those publicly um, for you know developers uh, to work with. So you can build some really cool either natural natural language stuff or you know or not. And uh, it's pretty amazing the advancements that are going on in that, in that space. And I've just been I've just started to take a deeper dive on it and really learn more about it and, you know, what's, what's available out there and how do you get started with it and all that. But it's pretty amazing what's going on, you know, around explicit coordination, where would you have, if you were just stepping into an organization or, or, or talking to somebody, what would be some of the first things that you would coach or guide a company to, to look at and do to get better at that, to really help become them help them become more efficient, more effective in their coordination of all these various activities between teams and people, et cetera? Well, recently I've become uh, kind of a, a big proponent of making work visible, uh, regardless of whether you're Scrum or Kanban or, or even whether you're not even doing any of that kind of stuff, but uh, get it out of the digital device and stick it on the wall. Um, I think that makes it very explicit. You know, you have to write it down and stick it on the wall and talk about it and have conversations about what you're doing. You know, are we doing the right thing? And is it the right time to do it? And are we doing it at the right place? In other words, do we have the right people and the right technology and all that kind of stuff? And answer those questions first. And then all the other questions of, you know, uh, what are we doing? How do we know what we're doing? All those kind of explicit questions can be answered. Uh, but you have to kind of get a good handle on what you're doing. I, I've been, you know, I've done this, as you know, I've done this consulting or contract work for a long time. And you get there and people have, you know, a Rally or, or uh, Jira and all these tools and they've got them just packed full of stuff. Nobody has a clue of how much work they're really, they got into queue, you know. And so there's, when that happens, you have no way of coordinating the work because you don't know what the work is. Um, so that's that's probably one of the first things that when I go somewhere new, that's the first thing I try to do is get them to answer the question is how much work do we have to do? And let's, let's put that out and make that explicit. Um, then the next thing is, is how often do we talk about what we're doing? How often do we... Um, you know, analyze whether or not we're doing 
the right thing, which is kind of goes into the continuous improvement piece of it. We make explicit. I was kind of thinking about this today because we the whole issue of uh, you know working agreements came up, and you know too often teams kind of dive into the nitty gritty of well you know I'm going to be on time for all meetings and all that kind of stuff, and I was thinking about it in more of an abstract way, in that. Uh, we're going to behave in such a way that we don't embarrass each other, you know? So let's set up some explicit rules on that. How do we be become better team members? And so, you know, don't waste time on all these details that are impossible. You know, you're setting yourself up for, for fa failure if you say, well, you're going to be on time for every meeting. You know, you just can't do that. Uh, but you can behave in such a way that the team can be proud of you, right? Um, that kind of stuff. So th those are some of the things that some of the takeaways that, that I would have. Ron, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's, a, it's always fun to, to chat with you. And I, I can't wait to uh, you get back out to California. And I hope your travels take you here sometime soon so we can uh, grab a beer and hang out and, and shoot the shit a little bit. And um, it's been awesome. Um, you know, congratulations. Uh, I, you know, I, I know you you finished this your, your your PhD a while ago, but I didn't know the whole backstory, and uh, it, it's a really compelling, very very interesting uh, work. And uh, you know, I definitely learned a lot. Thanks for listening to Notables. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review and rating. You can also support the Notables podcast with a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes. Just visit anchor.fm slash notables or click the link in the show notes. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information and show transcripts, please visit www.notablespodcast.com.